When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 275, and today we are talking about books being released on September 1st, 2020, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Danica Ellis, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Danica, welcome! It's your first show! Hello! Hopefully not your last. I will try to be, like, very easy on you, Um, but (laughs) welcome! Thank you. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. I'm Danica. I'm a contributing editor at Book Riot. Before this, I did videos for about a year, and now I'm back to writing and now trying this podcast thing. And when I'm not on Book Riot, I also have a book blog called The Lesbury, where I review buying lesbian books, and that's about it. I'm a substitute teacher, and I just like books. That's about all. Well, welcome. This is crazy for me because I think you've been a contributor almost as long as I have. And this is actually our first time interacting, which I mean, yeah. in person, in air quotes, in person, <laughs> because I've, you know, started in 2011 when the site started and you, mm-hmm. were you then too? I can't remember. I was a little bit after that, but not by much. I can't even remember how many years it's been now. It's definitely it's been wild. a while. <laughs> yeah. I think I definitely saw you at Book Riot Live. I don't know if we actually met. Oh, maybe we did meet. But I don't know. Oh. It was a lot of sprinting around and <laughs> running into people. I miss Book Riot Live. That was I know. really fun. Yeah, me too. You know, I wish that we could have, I mean, now nobody can get together anyway. But yeah. I hope that someday we get to do something else where, like, we get to interact with each other and people who visit the site. That was really fun. It was really fun. Yeah. And that was, like, three years ago now, the last oh. one, which was bananas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I shared a hotel room with Sharifa then, and now she's, like, risen up the ranks, too. It's so fun to see all of these people and where we're at now when we were just little baby book rioters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's awesome. Mm -hmm. I've been highly enjoying her roller skating videos. She's been learning to roller skate during the pandemic, and it's pretty impressive. That's amazing. There's a lot of moves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's like, this is a different move today, and this is this, and she's been practicing. It's pretty great. So we are going to talk about books today, which is what we do. But before we do that, I just want to do a really quick shout out. I want to say hello to a very little listener named Hugo. I received an email from Hugo's mom the other day, and I want to say hi to Hugo. And now we're going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. 
So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone Books in all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so books. I know it's your first show, but I'm going to go first. I always go first. I don't know why. Uh, this first pick is called Transcendent Kingdom by Yaa Jesse. If that name sounds familiar, it's because she is the author of the amazing novel Homegoing, which has already been out for like five years now, believe it or not, talking about time going by quickly. This is a contemporary novel, and it is so fantastic. Oh, her writing is just so good. It's amazing. It's about a young black woman named Gifty. She lives in California. She goes to Stanford. She's in her last year there. She works in the science department. She's doing a lot of testing around uh, the brain. She studies neuroscience. And she's from Alabama. Uh, her mother still lives there. Her mother immigrated with uh, Gifty's older brother, Nana, when Nana was a baby. Then her father, who is referred to as the Chin Chin Man, moved over there. And Gifty was actually born in Alabama, so... She doesn't know Ghana that much. And so while Gifty is out in California, she gets this call from her mother's pastor who says, uh, your mother's not doing well. And she knows what this means because when Gifty was 11, uh, her brother Nana uh, died of an overdose and her mother got into her bed and wouldn't come out. And so they sent Gifty to live with her aunt in Ghana for a while. And she, her pastor says, you know, this is this is what's happening again. And he somehow convinces her mother to get on a plane and she flies out to California and immediately gets in bed when she gets to Gifty's house. And so Gifty doesn't know what to do. She can't get her to interact. And while she is talking about what is going on with her mom in this first week that she's staying with her, she also describes what it was like growing up with her mother. She talks about her father and her brother. She grew up in a very religious household. Her mother 
is very religious. She took them to church. Gifty used to write journal entries when she was young. She used to talk to God, and we get to see some of these uh, throughout the novel, um, you know, asking him, like, can you give me a sign if you're real? And, you know, she's questioning things that she's told by her Sunday school teacher about, like, even thinking bad thoughts will condemn you to hell. Uh, And then when she gets older, like, questioning things, like, about how her pastor tells him, like, Jesus has to save everyone. And, you know, like, so... He talks about like these little villages in Africa where they haven't reached them yet. Like the missionaries haven't gotten out there. You know, her brother asks, like, are they condemned to hell if they haven't heard the word? And they're like, yes. And she realizes like he's just talking about the places where where I'm from, where my family is from. Like and it kind of skews her idea of religion. And then when her brother dies, you know, it also drives her farther away from the church. And now she's a scientist and she studies the brain and she's working on these these mice in the lab, uh, she mostly studies like a response in them, like addiction, like uh, she gives them a treat. And then after like so many days of giving them a treat, like she gives them a shock when they go for that same thing and like tries to figure out like what synapses are firing and how addiction works and why some mice will go for that shock every single time, even after, you know, so many times. And like other mice will be like, no, thank you. Like I've learned my lesson. And it's kind of like she's looking for answers to her brother's death. Like what what is addiction in the brain and what does it look like? And she also has a hard time rectifying church and science, you know, like they're almost always kept separately. And and she wants to believe in God, but she also wants to study science. And it's just this, it's this amazing story. You know, she goes, it goes, like I said, it goes back and forth in time. Um, It talks about like her dad and when he left and about how her mother was kind of strict and how as an adult, you know, Gifty doesn't really interact well with others and about like how her mother, even though she's been laying in her bed for a week she doesn't believe in depression uh, and she won't talk to her and how they've kind of had this like sort of distant relationship her mother once didn't talk to her for a whole month because she came home from college with dreads and it's sort of like how are these two women going to to connect and how are they going to survive this you know both of them it's so fantastic it's very original it's beautiful um you know heads up for uh, there's racist language there's some interactions that could be considered as parental abuse also, it was really hard for me to read about the mice. There is a lot of detailed tellings of experiments on the mice. So uh, heads up for animal harm. But I just, I loved this novel. It's called Transcendent Kingdom, and it is by Ya Jesse. That sounds amazing. I loved Home Going, so I definitely have to pick that one up. Looking forward to it. Yes. And I'm so glad it's here now. I think it got pushed like several, several months. I think it was supposed to come out in May, so. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, my first pick is We Are Not Free by Tracy Chi. And this is an historical fiction YA. And it talks about Japanese American incarceration camps. And it goes through 14 different points of view, which sounds completely overwhelming. But it actually works really well because it's chronological. So it keeps passing off to the next person in a way that makes total sense. And all of these characters are friends. They're from the same place. They are all from Japantown in San Francisco. And they are all different ages of teenagers. And they all have really different personalities. And it's about them trying to cope with incarceration, with being taken away, and all of their different sort of survival styles. 
And it's told with some newspaper clippings and documents and photos from the time. And I think what was the strongest part for me were these chilling little details that would be included. So it goes from 1942 to 1945. So it starts before incarceration, but during the war. And it just looks at all of these different experiences that they're having with racism and these really surreal things that are happening. So they're starting to get the news that people are being sent away, that people are Japanese Americans are being arrested. And they talk about seeing these plumes of smoke coming out of the chimneys in Japantown. And it's all of these people, including one of the moms, who are burning all of their family heirlooms and anything that might be associated with Japan because they don't want to be seen as disloyal or as loyal to Japan. And they talk about Chinese teenagers who are walking around with pins that say, I am Chinese, because they keep getting taken and beaten up for being mistaken for Japanese. And it's these little details that really make that time feel real, I guess, and make you really relate to it. And it goes from before incarceration to their forced removal and talking about having to sell all of their possessions, having to just take out everything that you've accumulated as a family and having to parse it down to two suitcases. And these bargain hunters who are swooping into Japantown and buying a whole business for $50 or buying all of your possessions for just pennies on the dollar. And that humiliation and trauma of just that alone and before you're even sent to the temporary detention center and then on to the incarceration camps. And it really just gives you such an idea of what it must have been like there. Tracy Chi interviewed her own family. She really talks about this as an own voices book and looking at it from her own family history and culture. And a lot of the details are from her own family and their experiences. And being in the actual incarceration camps, It is painted as this really surreal experience because you are surrounded by barbed wire. You have these guards that are there with guns who want to shoot you if they think that you're trying to escape. But at the same time, they have school and they're having these sock hops and having Thanksgiving and trying to act as if it's all normal, even though they're living in these terrible conditions and they're being incarcerated, they're being stripped of their rights. And I learned so much from this book about a time that I'm not super familiar with. I did learn a little bit about Japanese-Canadian internment camps or incarceration camps, but I hadn't really gone into a lot of detail, and you get so much detail from here and all of the events that happened, like the loyalty questionnaire where they had to basically say whether they are pledging allegiance to the U.S. or whether they are going to go back to Japan. And inside of that is this question of whether they're willing to fight in the army and be conscripted while they're being denied their own rights as citizens. 
And there's also some of the characters decide to sign up for the army and you see what it's like for them fighting in the war. And you see all of their different choices, these 14 different teenagers who have their own ways of trying to survive and keep their sense of self. So you see some of them really going into denial and trying to act like everything is normal, and some of them just dealing with this rage and all of the ways that they try to process this situation that is so difficult and offering these impossible choices. And I love this book. I feel like I could just keep talking about it forever, so I will stop there, but it is excellent. And I also think it would be a great choice of a book to teach because I am a teacher and I'm always thinking about that. But I think anyone would really benefit from reading this book. It was amazing. And that is We Are Not Free by Tracy Chi. All right. When I went to NEBA, which is the New England Booksellers Association, uh, like fall festival last year, one of the people who works for the publisher, when I got inside the the ballroom for the setup with all the tables with all the books, uh, she came over, took my arm and walked me right over to that book and was like, this is the book that you need to read right now. And she wasn't wrong. Oh, really? Yeah, it's so good. Mm-hmm. My next book is very different. It is nonfiction, and it is called Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains by Carrie Arsenault. It is about Maine, which is so exciting because that is where I am sitting right at this very moment. Uh, yes, it takes place in the 207. When I was 17, I, I mean, I grew up in Maine, and when I was 17, I was like, I hate it here. And as soon as I graduated, I moved the whole big way right across the river into New Hampshire. Uh, but 20 years later, I came back and I was like, I love Maine. I love this place so much. And it is the largest New England state, and it is considered a large state, but it feels so small. Maybe because it's mostly trees. But it, like, I live at the bottom of the state. It takes six hours to drive to the top of the state, which is not very long, six hours. It's like the littlest big state that there is. And it feels like wherever you drive, you know, you are always finding the place that you're looking for. Um, and Carrie Arsenal grew up in Maine as well. Uh, she is 10 years older than I am. Uh, she grew up in Mexico, Maine. There's this whole series of towns up north that are like Mexico, China, Paris, Poland, named after all these these countries. And she grew up in Mexico, Maine, which is next to Rumsford, where there is a paper mill. The Androscoggin River runs right by this paper mill. And it's been there for a very long time. And everybody who lived in these little tiny towns, their families worked there. And most people who lived there and grew up there never really moved out of the area. But Carrie actually had many jobs. And she eventually left Maine. She got married. Uh, she married someone who was in the service, so she traveled all around. And in 2009, she was doing some research into her family, and someone said, you should talk to the doctor's wife. There uh, is a is the town doctor, like, you know, this, like in TV shows and movies, like they have the small town doctor, like his wife. We're going to call her Mrs. Martin because they, she calls him Dr. Martin in the book. I don't know if that's a, their actual name, but I'm guessing probably not. Um, but they said, you should talk to Mrs. Martin because she she had a lot of family there and she knows everybody and she remembers everything. And so just sort of like casually thinking like, this is nothing. She reaches out to the doctor's wife saying, you know, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about my family. And she, the, she says something more cryptic, kind of like, are you ready for like these secrets that are going to be revealed? And Carrie's like, um, what now? So she's like, yeah, I guess I'm on board. So she goes and she visits with Mrs. Martin and they talk 
over many years. Uh, and it turns out that what she wanted to tell her about was about her husband's work and the fact that their area, the village that they live in and the, the other towns, the rates of cancer are through the roof and they seem to be tied to this mill. This mill that like she didn't really give much thought to other than the fact that like everyone she knew worked for it, everyone's parents worked for it, you know, it's just like a fact of life. This is what happened. And in fact, her husband, Dr. Martin, starting in 1985, he began sounding the alarm about this mill, like how there was such a high volume of cancer cases in the area and just ridiculously high, you know, for such a small town. But he was one small town doctor going up against a giant corporation. And even after some Aaron Brockovich level reveals, like where he talks to employees who off the record who are like, yes, you know, they paid me to bury all this waste right on the riverbanks. Or, you know, they have started using, they started dumping into the town's water supply. Like nothing that he took to the town and nothing he could say, like, was getting heard. And there was even a show, um, Boston has a sh show that's like their own 60 Minutes, their own version of 60 Minutes called Chronicle. It's very famous in the area. And there was a 1991 episode of Chronicle where they talked about the high instances of cancer in this area. They talked to one of Carrie's classmates. She was, a, you know, a child at the time. She was in Boston at Dana-Farber, which is the hospital for children with cancer. And 30% of the children on the floor with her lived within a 20-mile radius of Rumsford and Mexico. And they had cancer cases where, like, only 36 people in the United States are diagnosed with this cancer every year, and yet several people in the town had it. And and the town kept saying, in the state, kept saying, nah, it's nothing, it's no big deal. You know, never mind that, like, we're finding all the carcinogens that you'd find in Agent Orange in your water supply, and the river is polluted and dying, and the trees are dying, and all the fish have died. You know, it's fine, it's totally fine, you know, and... Meanwhile, you know, now Carrie, it's 2009, Carrie's classmate has died, the doctor has died of cancer, uh, you know, her friend's parents have died of cancer, her father had cancer, and, you know, it's something, like, she never, like, realized when she was younger. And this is just a memoir about the experience, with, like, with the cancer and the high levels of toxins in the area, but it's about capitalism and complacency and, you know, trying to fight a big corporation. It's also about her childhood, you know, like, what it was like growing up in Maine and what it was like to be unaware of, you know, what was going on. You know, there were times where, like, they had chemical spills at the plant and a bunch of kids in her high school would get nosebleeds all at once and, and they didn't tie these things together, you know, and she talks about, like, growing up in a small town and also, like, the guilt, you know, what it feels like to have gotten out and gotten away from this. She also talks about the smell of a paper mill, which I have to tell you, if you have never experienced that, wow. Like, I will tell you, when I was eight years old, my parents and my brother and I were driving to visit my cousins who lived in Orono, which is like a few hours north. And we were driving through Lewiston, where there was also a paper mill at the time. And all of a sudden, just like me, my mother, and my brother all got car sick just at once. It was like, it's like the most horrible smell. And I was like, mommy, what is that? Because it's just, it's terrible. And she talks about like, I thought like, oh, you must get used to that. When you live in this town that smells like this, you must get used to that. But she actually talks about like how you could just still smell it on everything and everyone. And, the, and people just lived there dealing with that. And there are very few mills left, like all around the country, you know, mills closed. There are not that many left in the country. But it was just, it's so well written and it's so fascinating and it's so interesting to see you know this examination of like the place that she grew up like for, but kind of like looking at it from the outside 
it's just excellent. I also want to give a shout out to James Mader, who is an editor. He works in publishing. He is from Maine, so whenever I go to New York City events, I always seek him out so we can sort of like bond over Maine things. But uh, his family was interviewed for this book. And I also want to point out one more thing, which is Full Body Burden by Kristen Iverson, which is a memoir that I absolutely love. And I like to point it out whenever I can. It's about sort of the same thing about her family growing up next to the Rocky Flats nuclear facility. So if you like to read like those Aaron Brockovich sort of exposés, that's another excellent one. This memoir is fantastic. It is called Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains by Carrie Arsenault. Uh, we're really starting off with the happy <laughs> light books. Eh? Yes. Just horrific history and current events. <laughs> Love to see it. Well, my next one is a little less heavy. This is Lux the New Girl, which is the first book in the Fly Girl series, and that's Fly with Two Ys by Ashley Woodfolk. And this is what is called a high-low book in teaching in library circles. That's H-I-L-O. And that means a book that is high interest, low reading level. So it's mostly written for students who are reading a little bit below grade level, but it is written at the same interest level or with the same ages as a young adult book. And it's a little bit shorter. It's a little bit simpler language, but they don't talk down to their readers. And I actually really like high-low books just for myself. I've read quite a few now that I really liked, like Crush by Carrie Mack and Under Threat by Robin Stevenson. Those are both queer YA high-low books. And they're great if you just want a book that is short and fast-paced. And I think that works for anyone, but it's especially valuable in a library. This is about Lux, so each of the books in the series has a different main character, a point of view. It follows four girls in Harlem, and when we start this book, Lux has just been kicked out of two schools for fighting, and her parents are threatening to send her to a military school if she doesn't shape up. And Lux is unsurprisingly angry because her dad walked out on them without saying anything to her. He just kind of disappeared in the night. And now he has a new girlfriend and a baby. And she is feeling frustrated and unwanted. And so she's kind of lashing out because of that. So when a girl at school starts harassing her and picking a fight, it's not a surprise that she starts throwing punches. And unfortunately, this fight is recorded. So everyone that was around pulled out their cell phone. And now there are all these videos of her breaking this girl's nose. And to be fair to Lux, she really was provoked. But still, there are all these videos of her being quite violent. And her mother now says that she can't handle Lux and that she has to go live with her dad and that if she messes up again, she's going to be shipped off to a military academy. So now Lux is stuck with her overly strict dad that she is still angry with and a baby half-sister that she never wanted and her dad's new girlfriend who she's basically never met. And her parents have pulled a few strings to get her into this elite art school where she can practice photography, which she is really passionate about. But she has this specter of those videos hanging over her. She is really worried 
about any of her new classmates finding out about the videos and about her past. And she is really trying to stay on the right path at this new school. And she decides that the way to do this is to break into this friend group that is referred to as the Fly Girls. They're kind of the cool kids at the school. And she is trying to get into that friend group to become friends with them. And at the same time, try to make sure that they don't actually find out about her past. And this is obviously a quick read, but it sets up the series really well. And I immediately really liked Lux. She keeps getting punished, especially by her father, when really she just needs someone to listen to her and to recognize that she has gone through some difficult things and needs support more than she needs punishment. So I really understood where she was coming from. And it also has the second book coming out the same day. So you can pick up both of the first two books and read them back to back. And I think this is a great read for anyone. Like I said, I really enjoy just reading some of these faster paced books every once in a while. But I think this is an especially good book and series to have in a school library or a classroom. And I realize now that I am very biased because I keep reading these books from a teacher perspective, but I can't help it. And that is Lux, the New Girl by Ashley Woodfolk. Okay. Before I talk about my next pick, we're going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. 
All right. We have spent a lot of time talking about books already. Um, It goes by really fast, but my next two picks will be pretty quick. Starting with this one, it is quick because it is a novella, and it's so good. It is Night of the Mannequins by Stephen Graham Jones. Let's all make that really excited applause noise. Yeah! Stephen Graham Jones, he's so great. He wrote The Only Good Indians, which came out, I don't know, five or six weeks ago. It's fantastic. This one is even bigger with the WTFery. I mean, it's just, oh, okay, let me tell you about it because I can't even begin to explain it. I don't want to say too much, but you got to know a little bit. It's about these teens. It's narrated by one of them. His name is Sawyer. He is friends with Shanna, JR, Danielle, and Tim. They kept, like That's their group. They kind of hang out together. And they decide that they are going to pull a prank on Shanna one day. Shanna works at a movie theater. And earlier on, I can't remember if it's that summer or like the year before, but the kids were kicking around in the woods down by the river. And they find this mannequin laying in the riverbed like this random piece of trash sort of this mannequin they named him manny not very original but they call him manny and they have all these like adventures with him they take photos of him doing crazy things and they kind of get their kicks and then they get tired of him and they just prop him up on his dad's motorcycle in sawyer's garage and they kind of forget about him well now shanna's working at a movie theater and they decide that they're going to play a prank so what they do is they take manny apart And they sneak him in piece by piece, like one person shoves like an arm down their pants and the other person has like a leg down their pants and they all sneak him into the movie theater and then they set him up by himself sitting in a seat. They give him a ticket stub to make it more realistic because it's hilarious. They put him all together like they get him dressed and now they know like the ushers are going to come by and check everybody's tickets because the kids are always sneaking in so the ushers will come by and check and maybe it'll be Shanna because you know she's working that day. And so it's going to be hilarious. They're going to like shine the flashlight to see his ticket. They're going to see it's a mannequin. They're going to scream. It's going to be great. Well, so the time comes that the ushers come into the theater and they finally get to Manny's row and they walk up to him and they see like the usher like shine the light on his ticket and then walk off and they're like, huh, what is going on? Like, how did he not notice that there is a mannequin sitting in the theater? So now they're just sitting there for the rest of the movie. And when the movie ends, Manny gets up and walks out of the theater. Like, what? What just happened? So the kids, they can't even believe this. They think they must be a victim of a prank themselves. Like, surely a mannequin did not just get up and leave the theater on its own. Somebody must have helped him. You know, it's just a joke. But now, like, where's Manny? Nobody knows where Manny is. Until a few days later, he shows up in Sawyer's garage again. And Sawyer kind of, like, talks to him because he's not entirely certain that he's not alive. I mean, he knows he's not alive. He's a mannequin, right? But, like, he talks to him. He offers him some food. When he goes to bed... He gets up the next morning and Manny is gone, but there is a bag of miracle Grow that has been emptied in his mother's gardening shed. He's like, okay, that's strange. And then, then the teens start to die. Here's where it all goes horribly wrong. Starting with Shanna and her family, uh, a Mack truck drives straight through their living room and hits them all. And the driver of the truck says, well, I had to swerve because I saw a giant mannequin stepping up out of the bushes. Like, who else could that be? And it turns out that Manny is kind of drawn to Shanna's house because she was watching the superhero film that was playing in the theater while Manny was part of this prank earlier. And now Sawyer realizes he knows what he has to do because he's worried that Manny's coming for them and he knows what he has to do. Let me tell you, what he decides he has to do is nothing that I ever expected or that I was expecting. And when I was reading this book, I told my friend that I got it because she's a big fan of Stephen Graham Jones, too. And I told her that I got it. And I was like, I'm going to start it today. 
We're very excited. You know, we're texting back and forth. And I'm telling her, yeah, I had to call her. And I was like, can't believe what is happening. I can't believe what is happening is actually happening. I cannot believe this is what is happening because it's banana pants. And that's all I can say about it. And also, I do want to remind you, it is a horror novel. Stephen Graham Jones does not coddle his readers at all. This is seriously disturbing. It's like a teen slasher film, but better. You know, it's funny. It's gory. It's unlike anything else I've read. It is Night of the Mannequins by Stephen Graham Jones. I can't believe I didn't know there was another Stephen Graham Jones. I yeah. didn't even know this was coming out. I'm going to I'm gonna save it till October. That's when I like to do all my horror reads. I just save it all for one month in the year. All right. And I have one that is definitely not horror. My next pick is Be Gay, Do Comics, and it's an anthology by The Nib, which is a website where a bunch of cartoonists post comics. And this is an anthology with more than 30 contributors, and they're all discussing some aspect of queer life. And I was really happily surprised by how diverse this is. I'm kind of used to queer anthologies that are a little more mainstream, and this covered a huge range of topics and perspectives. It's not just cis gay men. There are a lot of different identities, a lot of artists of color and trans artists, which was really awesome. And it's a mix of one-page comics and some longer pieces. So some of them are pretty simple one-off jokes or observations, and others are looking at queer history and exploring things a little more in-depth. And I loved these little glimpses into some queer culture and history that I didn't know about, like looking at gay characters and Puerto Rican TV shows and comparing that to the history and the present state of LGBTQ rights in Puerto Rico. Another one is about how LGBTQ people have been treated in the Philippines pre-colonialism up to the present. And there's a comic that includes interviews from queer parents raising kids in Malaysia. There are also comics that are biographies of queer people in history, some of which are well-known and others I'd never heard of, including Gad Beck, who is a gay Jewish spy, and Baron von Steuben, an openly gay military leader in the American Revolution. And I also really liked the just memoir stories. So there is one that's talking about being non-binary while taking folk dancing lessons, and one that talks about coming out in their late 30s and the pride and embarrassment and mourning of that, uh, mourning for their younger out queer self who never got to be. And others that are looking at historical events, like I really liked Hazel Nulevant's comic about the queer uprisings that preceded Stonewall, because Stonewall is usually seen as the beginning of gay rights and of protests, but there were actually other protests that were before Stonewall. And another comic that looked at the Lavender Scare and one that was the history of the rainbow flag. There's just a huge variety of topics, and there are all kinds of different identities included, and politics even. So there's a comic about gay Republicans that's almost this anthropological view. There are comics about gatekeeping within the queer community and about gay liberation. I really enjoyed that part of it. 
it's always hard to talk about an anthology like this in a cohesive way because they're all so different in art style and tone and topic and identities, but I really enjoyed this one. As always, there are some comics that I liked more than others, but there weren't any that I thought were weak. They all have really distinct styles that I liked looking at, and they all had great stories, whatever those stories were. And I always enjoy these anthologies for the chance to be exposed to a bunch of different artists and authors and discover their other work. I really loved this one. And I would highly recommend it, especially if you might not always pick up LGBTQ anthologies because you're assuming that they are mostly cis gay men. This one is a lot more diverse and a lot more interesting because of that. So that is Be Gay, Do Comics by The Nib. All right. And my last pick is a short book. And so I'm going to give you a short description, and it is also comics. It is Fangs by Sarah Anderson. Yes, that Sarah Anderson. Sarah Anderson of Sarah Scribbles, which is the hilarious online comic of the young woman. Every time I read it, she's anxious about this. She doesn't want to leave the house. She only wants to talk to her cats, and I identify with that comic so, so much, especially the one where she goes to the bookstore, and she's like, very frugal in her life, and then they show her at the bookstore, and she's just, like, throwing money everywhere. I I love that comic. And she was actually, she was at Book Riot Live in 2017. She's so great. Well, this one, I got so excited when I saw this, because I was like, is that going to be the same person? And it is. It is called Fangs. It is a series of comics about a 300-year-old vampire named Vamp who starts dating a werewolf named Jimmy. They meet... They date, they fall in love, we follow the whole story. It has some of the usual vampire werewolf jokes. Uh, you know, he takes off after a squirrel while they're on a date. Um, she doesn't show up in his pictures. He's, you know, he's trying to take photos for Instagram. Um, it has a few of the usual, like, vampire werewolf tropes, but they're so adorable. Um, his friends don't believe that she's real because she doesn't show up in the photos. And they also think that maybe she's just a booty call because he only visits her at nighttime. You no know, one knows that she's a vampire. Uh, it's so charming and funny. Uh, you know, like the first time he gets up after they've slept together, he gets up and he's like, what a great day and opens the curtains. And she's like, ah, he's like, oh, sorry, I forgot. You know, just just silly stuff like that. Um, it's just a charming monster romance. And plus, I love the illustrations. These drawings look nothing like her very thick black lines in the Sarah Scribbles comic. These are, you know, very thin lines and they're so cute. Like the, the vampire is adorable. She has the cutest little fangs. And Jimmy, you get to see him both as his human form and as his werewolf form. And I just, I'm laughing now just thinking about him scolding a corgi. Um, It's just adorable. And so if you have people in your life who like vampires or werewolves or being charmed, uh, people who are falling in love, teenagers, I think everyone will love this book. It's adorable. It is called Fangs, and it is by Sarah Anderson. And now you are going to tell us about your last pick, Danica, and this is one uh, that I don't think you've read yet because everything gets moved all the time now. So for your very first show, we already had to be like, sorry, you can't talk about that one because it's no longer coming out today. Yeah, I thought I would be so prepared and read a book well in advance, had all the notes, and then I read it so far in advance that now the publication date has been shifted. (laughs) So that teaches me for being on top of things. I had them do it on purpose, actually, just to prepare (laughs) you. You know, I want you to hit the ground running. 
Perfect. <laughs> so I have read the first few chapters of this one, and I'm really liking it so far. So my last pick is Throw Away Girls by Andrea Contos. And this is a YA thriller. And I'm going back into dark books because this is a dark one. There are content warnings for homophobia and conversion camps, death, misogyny, this is about Carolyn Lawson, who just wants to keep her head down until graduation. In three months, she's going to be done with her strict prep school, and she'll be able to escape from her homophobic mother. And up to this point, she has really been able to keep things together by living a double life. She lives in Maryland, but she escapes to this bar across the border in West Virginia, and there she meets up with her secret girlfriend whenever she can. And that's Willa, who is really her anchor and escape. It's where she feels safe is when she can be with Willa. So that bar is her hideaway. She befriended the gruff old man owner and crashes on the couch there sometimes. She does her homework there. And now... Everything has been taken away. Her girlfriend has dumped her and moved away. Meanwhile, Carolyn is still healing from the matching tattoos they got together, because even though she is 17, she's still going to this bar and getting illegal tattoos. So she is counting down the days to freedom when her best friend disappears. And her best friend, Madison, seemed to have it all together. She always knew how to fit in and what to say, unlike Carolyn, who has anxiety and never feels like she is fitting in. So Carolyn is determined to find Madison, but instead she finds only more questions. It turns out that there have been other girls that have gone missing, but because they weren't white girls from elite prep schools, their disappearances didn't attract a lot of attention. So Carolyn already doesn't trust the police when she was sent to conversion camp and suffered abuse there and escaped. The cops handed her right back to her abusive mother who sent her there. So she doesn't trust that the cops are going to find Madison. She's trying to untangle the whole mystery herself and save Madison and find out what happened to the other girls as well. And she is realizing that all of the girls seem to have a connection with Carolyn in common. And she's trying to figure out this mystery without getting pulled in herself. This is a dark, intense book. It's a book that starts with the first line, everything started with the body at the edge of the lake. And in that same first chapter, there is a mystery narrator. So it's not Carolyn. We're not sure who it is, but this mystery narrator goes on to explain that this isn't the first dead body that she's found and that she's dealt with a lot of death and difficulty in her life. So we see that Carolyn is dealing with having been sent to a conversion camp and growing up in this really conservative and homophobic environment. And so she's already having difficulties before Madison goes missing. And she also finds out that Madison has been keeping secrets as well. So it turns out that her and Madison didn't know each other as well as she thought. And this is a book about misogyny and power and how powerful men exert this power and which victims are considered worthwhile and which are throwaway, in quotation marks. The main character in this one is very divisive. She's the kind of person that if you hate unlikable female characters, you probably wouldn't enjoy her. She is 
traumatized and flawed. But personally, when I hear unlikable female character, I go running towards them. Those tend to be my favorite books to read. So I am really enjoying this so far. And having that unnamed other narrator adds a whole other layer of mystery. So if you're looking for a dark YA thriller, you should check out this one. And that's Throwaway Girls by Andrea Contos. Okay, Danica, those were our new books. What are you going to read next? Yeah, I am reading a new anthology called Love After the End, and it is edited by Joshua Whitehead, and this is a two-spirit and LGBTQ anthology that's coming up September 15th, and I am really excited about it. All right. I've been watching a lot of Taxi. (laughs) It's hard to pull me away from Taxi. I don't know why I'm so fascinated by it, but... I am going to to set it down eventually and uh, read White Ivy by Susie Yang, which I've heard nothing but fantastic things about. It was just long listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. It's about a young woman who becomes obsessed with a classmate, and it sounds really great. It comes out November 3rd. That's another one, I believe, was supposed to be out this month and got pushed. Can't keep track anymore. So many mm-hmm. books getting moved around. But... Congratulations, Danica. You made it through the episode. Thank you. And that is all for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com, or you can find us online. Danica hangs out on Twitter. Her handle is lesbrary, which is L-E-S-B-R-A-R-Y. I mostly hang out on Instagram, post pictures of my cats. Uh, It is friends and comes alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books out today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.